Good morning. Uh, thanks to council for uh, being flexible. Uh, our uh, next case is Sprouse versus Mary B. Turner Trucking Company at all, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. Good morning, Chief Justice and Associate Justices. My name is Scott Roberts. I'm from Gastonia, North Carolina. I'm here with my law partner, Brad Collins, and we have the privilege of representing Donna Sprouse on this appeal from the Court of Appeals. This is originally an appeal from the Industrial Commission my partner, uh, Mr. Collins, will argue any rebuttal, and I would respectfully request six minutes be reserved for rebuttal. Again, this is a case uh, that stems from the Industrial Commission as a result of a on-the-job accident. And the Deputy Commissioner level and at the full commission level, they both ruled in favor of Ms. Sprouse, finding that she had a compensable injury by accident and that uh, she complied with the um, rules of 9722, which is the notice provision, and that she uh, met her burden of proving that she was injured in her trucking accident and that she met her burden of proving the period of temporary total disability. Um, the Industrial Commission's um, rulings were over, overturned by the Court, Court of Appeals majority in this case, and uh, I would submit that the Court of Appeals majority violated the standard of care and ignored the standard of care in this case, um, which is that the Industrial Commission is the fact-finding body um, in workers' compensation cases, that the Industrial Commission is the sole judge of credibility of the witnesses and the weight to be given to their testimony. The duty of the Court of Appeals is to go no further than to determine whether the record contains any evidence supporting the findings of fact, and the Industrial Commission's findings are conclusive on appeal, even if there is evidence to, to support a contrary finding. And every, um, the plaintiff is to begin with every benefit of every reasonable inference to be drawn from the evidence. That is the long-standing standard of review as established by our legislature in 97-86, which is entitled, the award of the Industrial Commission is conclusive as to facts. And the first sentence, first few lines of the, that statute states, the award of the Industrial Commission shall be conclusive and binding as to all questions of fact. What the Court of Appeals majority did is ignored that standard. They reweighed all of the evidence. They ignored facts and findings of fact by the Industrial Commission and, and made their own findings of fact to reach a different conclusion. That is clearly not the role of the Court of Appeals uh, uh, from an uh, Industrial Commission award. There are three issues that are on appeal, and in each one of those issues, the Court of Appeals um, ignored or violated the standard. Excuse me, Counselor. Yes. Before you move on, uh, uh, in the context of the uh, burden of proof and, and the uh, findings of fact that you talk about, uh, could you comment on, or here's an actual question, in the, uh, I believe it's the 2010 uh, Gregory versus Brown and Sons uh, case, uh, the question I have is, it, with respect to what you just said, is um, the, uh, are the findings uh, of fact and conclusions of law concerning 9722 sufficient to avoid a remand 
based on this case that uh, says that as a matter of law, the Industrial Commission had to conclude that the employer had not been prejudiced and supported with the appropriate findings of fact. Would you comment on that in the context of the general comments you just made before you move on? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Gregory, uh, which was authored by Chief Justice Newby, st stands for the proposition that the Industrial Commission is required when, when in regards to the 9722 notice provision they are required to make fi requisite findings of fact on all the issues that are elicited in 9722. Um, and in this case, and I'll explain why, but in this case, the Industrial Commission did make uh, findings of fact on prejudice, on reasonableness, on whether or not they had actual notice, what was included in that actual notice. So um, Gregory set out a playbook, if you will, of what the Industrial Commission is supposed to follow. And the Industrial Commission in this case followed that playbook to a T. They checked off every box that Justice Newby, Chief Justice Newby stated they had to check off. And how did they do that? Well, they, they made findings of fact. It, well, first, 9722 says that um, if there is insufficient notice or the notice is late, the Industrial Commission, there'd be no compensation made payable unless reasonable excuse is made to the satisfaction of the Industrial Commission for not giving such notice and the Commission is satisfied that the employer has not been prejudiced. They're in instructing the Industrial Commission, you need to make findings of fact on both of those issues. In this case, they made findings of fact that, um, that the employer in this case, the trucking company, had actual notice of the accident on the day of the accident. They received two different written notices, including an accident report. Then Ms. Sprouse was required to fill out an incident report. So they had all that information almost immediately. They made a finding of fact concerning that actual notice. It was immediate. They also, they made, the Industrial Commission made a finding of fact on the, that Mrs. Sprouse's husband was in the truck. He was in the sleeper cab. He got tossed around as a result of the accident. And he had immediate, obvious injuries. And the employer defendants were put on immediate notice of that. And they provided, they accepted his case under workers' comp and provided medical care. So the Industrial Commission checked that box off, that there was actual notice. Then they went to the, the issue of reasonable. Did the plaintiff act reasonably in this case by failing to provide actual notice, at notice of her injury, her, which in, turned out to be two herniated discs in her neck? What they found was she gave notice of the accident the employer knew about it. She did not give notice of, of her neck injury until I think it was 471 days later. And the Industrial Commission made the findings of fact, as instructed by the Gregory Court, that this was reasonable under those circumstances. And you have to take each case when you're dealing with reasonableness as a case-by-case -case basis. And the fact finder is the, is the body that decides what's reasonable. Not the Court of Appeals, not the appellate court, but the fact finder. And in this case, the Industrial Commission found that that delay in uh, reporting or notifying the, the defendants that she had a neck injury was reasonable under those circumstances because she did not know about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's one of, one of the known reasons that have been accepted by this court in many different, different other cases that if a person does, if a worker doesn't know about, the, about their injury, doesn't know it exists, or doesn't know the nature of it, doesn't know the severity of it, then that's a reasonable excuse that's been accepted by our court numerous times previous to this. And the industrial, more importantly, the Industrial Commission made a finding of fact or findings of fact on that particular issue and found 
that Ms. Browse acted reasonably because she did not know that she had two herniated discs in her neck until she started exhibiting um, symptoms almost a year or a little over a year later after the wreck. In terms of looking at the conclusions of law being supported by the findings of fact, what should we make of the fact that the um, employee felt as though her sciatica had been the basis for her pain instead of her work injury? So yes, but the, and that and that goes towards reasonableness again, uh, Your Honor. It, it meaning that um, and Miss Miss Browse testified at the hearing. She's the only individual who testified in this case at, at the hearing. She testified that she didn't know she had injured her neck. She was she had some generalized soreness right after the wreck. Went to a primary care a nurse two days later with generalized soreness. Was given a, a Flexeril prescription. Went back to that nurse. Uh, about three weeks later, her symptoms had, had resolved or were better, and then she never complained or didn't have any complaints until almost a year later. Even when she started having symptoms, which were numbness and weakness in her arms and hands and then some nerve pain in her legs, she didn't know where it was coming from. And we know that from her testimony, we know that from Nurse Gant's testimony, that when she came to see her, she just said, hey, I'm having these symptoms, I haven't had them before, uh, what's going on. Nurse Gant thought that it may be coming from her low back and referred her to an MRI for the low back. And when she got those results back, she referred uh, Ms. Sprouse to the neurosurgeon, Dr. McGurk. So even up until Ms. Um, Sprouse saw Dr. McGurk, she, would, she had been uh, informed by Nurse Gant, hey, this could be coming from your low back. Ultimately, that proved not to be correct Dr. McGirt immediately, based on the severity of her symptoms, immediately su uh, suspected that there was a problem in her neck, referred her to an MRI. It revealed the two herniated discs. Ms. Sprouse came back to see her January 10th um, of 2017, 2018 and to Dr. McGirt, and that's the first time she heard or was informed that she had two level herniated discs in her neck. That's the very first time. And she filed a notice of her claim or a notice of her injury of her neck within 30 days after that. Is it your position then, then that despite the fact that she herself felt as though her sciatica had been uh, the reason for her pain, that that would, in light of the expert testimony, <clears throat> coupled with the Industrial Commission's uh, determination that uh, based upon looking at all the facts, including facts that may detract from her claim, all of that goes into your position, therefore, that uh, as we are to understand your position at least, that uh, the Industrial Commission was correct in ferreting out the facts as it saw fit in light of the expert testimony and all of it. Yes, Your Honor. Um, what the Industrial Commission did is what uh, our courts, including the Supreme Court, has instructed them to do, which is on any issue of medical causation or any complicated issue of, of medical fact, the parties, either side, are required to present expert medical testimony on that issue. You can't have a lay person providing testimony as to what's wrong with them, what's causing the symptoms, and where they're coming from. So, and just uh, so I'm clear on the evidence in this case, there was no competing medical evidence about the cause of her injury, correct? That, that is correct, Your Honor. There was only one uh, individual that testified on medical causation, and that was Dr. McGirt, the neurosurgeon that operated on her neck. And he testified 
that he reviewed, at his deposition, he reviewed any pre-existing chiropractic um, uh, treatment notes, which I believe there was only nine different times that she saw a chiropractor in years remote before this accident. He then reviewed Nurse Gantz's notes after the accident up until he saw her, and he testified, and he reviewed the photos of the truck accident, which, which um, revealed that you've got a tractor trailer that had wrecked on I-40 going approximately 70 miles an hour and wrecked into a grassy embankment and was overturned on its side. He reviewed all that, and based on what he knew of her herniated disc, he testified more likely than not those discs were caused by the truck accident. And so the Industrial Commission um, followed the, the standard, which is we ha you have to, the party has to present expert medical testimony. And if you don't, then you can't prove causation, or you can't prove what, where the symptoms are coming from, or disability. And in this case, so there, there are some circumstances where the Court of Appeals could reject, or there, that's the only testimony that's offered. The Court of Appeals could still reject it. So suppose, for example, that, that an expert's testimony is just obvious, post hoc ergo, proctor hoc, you know, logical fallacy. The commission nevertheless says we credit this testimony, the Court of Appeals rejects it. Was there something like that going on here? What was the reason? It certainly seems to be reading like the Court of Appeals just rejected this evidence. So what was the basis for the court to do that? The, the, the court, of, uh, court of Appeals majority stated that it, it was uncontradicted that this, uh, that Ms. Browse had some pre-existing symptoms and that, uh, and that Dr. McGurd at the time of his deposition knew about those. And then therefore we leap to the conclusion that, that they must, that her symptoms, her herniated disc must be, have predated the accident. So they make this leap of faith without pointing to any evidence at all. Um, and, and, and Dr. McGirt did the opposite. And, and you're right, uh, Your Honor, um, the, the Court of Appeals can analyze an expert witness testimony to make sure they're not just testifying out of the blue or they're not using um, uh, sound medicine and science. And, and what's been cited by the defendants for the first time that in their brief to the Supreme Court is, is, that, is that post hoc ergo propter hoc that something occurred, therefore everything after it has to be related. Dr. McGirt's testimony clearly does not rely just on that proposition. Now, obviously you have to have an action to get a reaction. And so Dr. McGirt said, she's got two large herniated discs that are pressing on her spinal cord, and those have to have come from significant trauma. The only significant trauma that was presented to him, and in fact the only significant trauma that we have in evidence in this case, is the trucking accident. There's an argument by the, by the defendants that, that Dr. McGirt's just going to assume that there wasn't any other trauma. Well, he's allowed to assume that because there is no evidence of any, any other trauma. There, the only evidence is that she had the truck accident, she had some soreness right after it went away, and uh, she went back to work. And then when she started having those significant symptoms a year later, she took herself out of work and eventually ended up with Dr. McGirt. He knew all those facts. He knew she had been to a chiropractor I think seven times in 2010 and two times in 2014. He reviewed those notes. He specifically addressed those notes and the symptoms and said, you know, this is completely different than what the symptoms related to herniated discs. Herniated discs, they're pinching on a spinal cord, cause what we, he said is myelopic symptoms, which means numbness and weakness. You lose control of your legs. She would have foot drag or was dragging one of her legs. Those are serious neurological symptoms related to the herniated disc. 
completely different from generalized soreness when you go to a chiropractor less than 10 times over the course of 10 years before this wreck. So he analyzed all of that. He, he looked at the, the, the wreck and, and the, the trauma that can be sustained in such a wreck as we commonly know as whiplash or acceleration, deceleration of your head being whipped around. Even though she didn't, she didn't, she testified she didn't hit anything. In fact, she had kind of a death grip on her steering wheel and, and had, had prior hands off after the truck came to, uh, to uh, rest. She, she literally didn't think she was hurt. And um, she informed her employer of that. The doctor explained how that can be. The doctor, Dr. McGirt said it can take up to two years for herniated discs to become symptomatic. And she was well within that. So he took in consideration all the facts of the wreck, her pre-existing chiropractor notes, the notes from Nurse Gant and what she did afterwards, leading all the way up to he saw her, the MRI, what he saw in surgery, and his, and his expertise as a neuro, longstanding neurosurgeon. He, he based his testimony, the causation testimony, on all of that, which is exactly what this court wants, what the courts have repeatedly said they want. They want sound medicine and sound science, and that's what we have in this case. What we don't have, if, if you go follow the Court of Appeals, is, is they, they pull it out of the air. They say she had some chiropractor visits years remote, therefore this has to be related to that. They don't present any medical testimony to that. Dr. McGirt certainly didn't testify to that. That, that chiropractor wasn't called as a witness and deposed. We did have Nurse Gant, and Nurse Gant just confirmed what was in her notes. And by the way, Nurse Gant also confirmed that from 2009 up until the date of this accident, that Ms. Browse never complained to her of any neck pain or low back pain, even though she had been going to a chiropractor some during that period of time. Again, confirming and uh, uh, providing clear, established facts that, that Dr. McGirt knew about and based his, his expert testimony. Right, because I, I take it your, your argument is, of course, the commission could have looked at uh, the information that the Court of Appeals provided in the opinion. Um, sort of the evidence was really kind of a lack of evidence. And then said, listen to Dr. McGirt's testimony and said, I don't believe that. And, and therefore, you haven't met your burden. But your argument is the commission might have been able to do that. The Court of Appeals certainly cannot. The commission is the only place where they could have said, even though the only testimony is Dr. McGirt, believing that credibility question is left to the fact finders. That, that's your argument? That is, that is my argument, and Your Honor, and that, that is our standard of review. So they are the fact finder, just like a jury in a civil case. So if a jury in a civil case, if this had been a civil case and a jury decided they didn't believe Dr. McGirt or didn't care what he had to say, they can rule against a plaintiff. They do it all the time. The Court of Appeals role isn't to say, hey, jury, you did a bad job with that. We think Dr. McGirt is credible. That's exactly what happened in this case. And in, in flipping that, like you said, if I had lost or Ms. Sprouse had lost at the full commission, the full commission didn't find Dr. McGirt credible, then we wouldn't have basis for appeal because they're the sole, they, they weigh that credibility, even though I may not agree with it. In this case, they found Dr. McGirt credible. They found Ms. Sprouse credible. They specifically stated that in their opinion. And the Court of Appeals ignored that and said, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to find that, that credible. And we've got this one little sliver of, of evidence or uh, a fact, and we're going to hang our hat on that, ignoring Dr. McGirt's testimony and ignoring all the other facts. Defendants in their brief uh, cite one answer um, in Dr. McGirt's deposition in their brief, and I, I counted there's 94 answers. 
So there's 93 other answers. And even the answer that they cite supports the, the Industrial Commission's finding of fact that they gave Dr. McGirt weight. And when he said symptoms before the wreck are not relevant, they're diff completely different than what we have after. She can have a delay in her own set of symptoms for as long as she did. She's got two large herniated discs. They have to be caused by significant trauma. The only evidence that we have of trauma is the car wreck, is the trucking accident. And that's what that's based on. And the, and the Industrial Commission's findings of fact are sufficient. They're, they're competent. And they're exactly what this court says that they need to do. Aside from the factual component, what should we make of the determination by the Industrial Commission that there was no prejudice based upon the delay? Uh, that would be something for a legal forum to consider. Yes, Your Honor. Um, so um, the, the majority court of appeals said that based on the length of time that that is automatically almost a per se rule of prejudice. And that is that flies in the face of what the legislature says that the Industrial Commission's role is and what is statutory. Statutorily is 97-22, which dictates that the Industrial Commission is to, to decide what is prejudice to their satisfaction. So they take every case, you can't have a per se rule. Um, the reason why, Your Honor, that we have 97-22 is there are many instances, it's very common for people to have an incident on the job, like they twist their back or they're picking something up, they might feel a twinge, but they don't really know they're hurt. And that happens all the time. Um, and so there's a, there, there are many instances, and I would argue almost an overwhelming amount of instances, where a worker doesn't know that they have an injury or doesn't, think, doesn't realize they're not just going to get better like they usually do until the 30 days is run. That's why the legislature created 9722 and allows the injured worker more time than the 30 days if, you have a, if they acted reasonably under the circumstances and if, if the defendants didn't show that they were prejudiced. And 9722 has to be read in conjunction with 9723, which 9723 clearly states that the employer has to prove that they were prejudiced and prove the extent of said prejudice. 9723 states, no defect or inaccuracy in the notice shall be a bar to compensation unless the employer shall prove that his interest was prejudiced thereby and then only to such extent as the prejudice. So they have to prove two things. The Court of Appeals clearly committed error when saying that the plaintiff has to prove that the employer wasn't prejudiced because the, the legislature tells, tells us otherwise. Uh, in this case, the uh, fact finder, which again is the Industrial Commission, um, found as fact that the employer presented zero evidence that they were prejudiced. In fact, they presented zero evidence at all in this case. They didn't put on any witnesses from the employer. They didn't put on any witnesses from the insurance carrier. They didn't retain any medical experts. They didn't ask for an IME. Um, so they didn't present any medical evidence that the delay in her being diagnosed with her herniated disc in some way impacted the outcome. In fact, the me overwhelming medical evidence in this case is the outcome was, was outstanding. Even though she didn't get diagnosed until 400, over almost 500 days later, um, she was only written out of work for a, a, for a, a whole six and a half months and then was released 
Dr. McGirt said she had an excellent result from the surgery. So you couldn't ask for a better result for, even under these circumstances of a delay of a herniated disc. So the defendants haven't shown any prejudice. All they say is we didn't have, we got a right under the statute, we have a right to direct medical care. Which, by the way, Your Honors, that's not evidence. That's just an argument of counsel. They didn't, nobody from the employer or the insurance company testified in any way about their right to direct medical care or that they, they would have done something differently had they known about her herniated disc. There's no evidence of that at all. So there's just a blanket statement of, you know, under comp, we have a right to direct medical care. Therefore, ergo, boom, we're prejudiced. That's not what 97.22 says. That's not what 97.23 says. That's not what our legislature says. They have the burden of proving this um, prejudice, and the Industrial Commission is the body that decides whether or not there was prejudice to their satisfaction. Um, and finally, on the issue of disability, and um, you know, the, the Industrial Commission found this fact that Dr. McGirt testified that she was disabled from September 28, 2017 until April 21st of 2018. I may be butchering that last date. Um, and, the, and Dr. McGirt based that testimony on his review of Nurse Gant's note, and he said once she started having weakness and numbness down her arms, she was, in, she was a danger to herself. She should not be working. And that's what he said when he said she became disabled in his review of the note. And there's a quote um, in the dissent, which I think is pretty uh, powerful. And Dr. McGirt stated, <coughs> he says, I mean, she should not have been working. Any patient who has that degree of spinal cord compression should not be working. And if they are able to do it, it's just out of dedication and determination. I mean, that's a major problem. So was she physically capable to drive a car? I believe she was physically cap capable of driving a car, but the standard of care in neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery is somebody with severe cervical stenosis from disc herniation should not be allowed to drive those cars or professionally go back to work until they're fixed. That is, that is a clear statement of Dr. McGirt that was cited in the dissent. And it, it is a, a, just a prime example, Your Honors, of the Court of Appeals majority ignoring the evidence in this case and running away from the clear evidence um, that has been presented. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. Yes, Your Honors. Uh, uh, I'll close by saying that this appeal was about preserving the sanctity of the Industrial Commission who, uh, and that employers and uh, injured workers deserve that. Otherwise, there'd be chaos. Just like in the jury system, if we take the ability of the jury to decide the facts of a case, it would be complete chaos for the citizens of this state. I would ask you to uphold the Industrial Commission and follow the instructions that, that was given to us by Gregory. Thank you. Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, everyone. May it please the court. My name is Laura Carter. I'm of Holder, Paget, Little, John, and Prickett here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm here on behalf of Mary B. Turner Trucking and their carrier. Um, it's defendant's contention that the Court of Appeals correctly determined the matter at hand. We contend that the standard of review that was utilized by the Court of Appeals was proper. The Court of Appeals properly determined that the plaintiff in this case failed to establish her condition as causally related to the trucking accident. That plaintiff failed to provide timely notice to her employer and further that the employer was in fact prejudiced by that failure to provide that timely notice and ultimately um, 
should any of those facts be overturned or disregarded, the Court of Appeals also correctly determined plaintiff's date of disability. Um, my first argument is regarding the standard of review. So the defendants contend that the Court of Appeals utilized the de novo standard, and it's our contention that was proper in that they chose to review the conclusions of law, and the conclusions of law are properly determined by the de novo standard as opposed to the appellate standard cited by plaintiff's counsel from 9786. And Based on that, the Court of Appeals then properly made their determinations regarding the arguments for notice, for prejudice, and for disability. So in accordance with the case law and statutes, an employee is required to provide written notice within 30 days of an accident, even if the defendant has actual notice. The Industrial Commission must determine whether or not the failure of plaintiff to provide written notice was in fact reasonable. If the Industrial Commission finds that the excuse was reasonable, they must then determine whether or not defendants were prejudiced by the failure of plaintiff to provide written notice. Here in this case, it's undisputed that plaintiff failed to timely report her injury. I'm going to distinguish between injury and accident. Uh, plaintiff now claims she was injured on September 24, 2016 during an 18-wheeler accident when the trier on the truck blew out as she was driving, resulting in a collision from an embankment. 30 days from this date would have been October 24, 2016. However, plaintiff waited until February 7, 2018, which was 501 days after the accident, to report her injuries to her employer via a Form 18. Plaintiff reported her injuries 471 days late, which is well beyond that statutory requirement. Um, regarding actual notice, defendants would note that while plaintiff reported that the accident occurred on September 24, 2016, the two accident reports that she completed indicated that she did not sustain any injury as a result of the tractor-trailer accident. Um, both those reports, there's a spot for her to put that information, and instead the first one, the Tennessee Electronic Crash Traffic Crash Report, document describes the incident that occurred, reported two total occupants in the vehicle with zero occupants injured and two occupants uninjured. Additionally, in the same report, under driver information, the injury code was reported as no injury. It was stated that no one was transported via medical transport. The narrative of the accident mentioned no personal injuries to either passenger. And additionally, plaintiff then signed the Rider Collision Incident Report on September 24, 2016. This report also contains a section, was anyone hurt? As a response to this question, plaintiff noted that her husband, John Sprouse, was in fact injured and notes his injury. There was a second space for her for a description of another passenger's injury. This was left blank. Let me ask you uh, to explain this for me. If the medical evidence is correct and the testimony of the doctor is to be credited, if this is an injury that doesn't manifest itself until a year or more after the actual injury um, in the accident, how could she possibly have reported an injury that she herself wasn't yet aware of and hadn't yet manifested? I would argue that, in fact, the fact that she went to her primary care and sought treatment within, she sought treatment fairly quickly within the days of the accident would override that, and she still failed to but, report but that. How, but how does it override it? The question is, she, she has an injury, the nature of which doesn't even manifest, so a medical provider, at least the medical provider she went to didn't diagnose her with that injury. It hadn't manifested itself. The symptoms, the numbness, the dragging her foot, the symptoms didn't manifest until 
over a year later, how could she report something that wasn't even existing at the time? And I understand what you're saying, but I also think the purpose of, um, I think Booker is the one that cites it, that the purpose of giving notice of the accident is to provide the employer to facilitate the earliest possible investigation and to minimize the seriousness of the injury. Right, but you said a minute ago, and I think appropriately, that we're distinguishing, and the statutes distinguish, between notice of the accident and notice of the injury. And my other answer to that would be, so a year later, she, she starts seeking treatment. She has these new symptoms. And at that point in time, she still does not report that she's having this incident is related back to this, this particular um, motor vehicle accident, even though the person that she initially treats with is Nurse Gant, who treated her immediately following the accident. So at that point in time, I would say she should have, a reasonable person would have at that point said, hey, I'm having problems with my you know, these symptoms, I've related it to my sciatica, but maybe it's because I was in this motor vehicle accident a year ago. So I think so, that So you're suggesting that she should have given notice of the injury before her medical providers diagnosed the injury and told her the cause of it? Well, I think she should have reported that she was having symptoms from the accident if she was having symptoms from that accident. Right, but she didn't know that until after she had the MRI of her neck and her doctor explained that it, that's the kind of injury that would cause her symptoms. Well, and I would also, I would, I would bring you further back because what Dr. McGirt says in his deposition is that he was unaware of the motor vehicle accident. <clears throat> he was treating her for a degenerative condition. So that's one other issue that defendants have regarding the causation arguments. Um, skipping ahead a little bit in my argument. Um, she is, she has this prior existing history. She has this history of sciatica. She also has a history of cervical complaints that's noted in the medical records. It's noted in the chiropractic notes. It was noted in the Court of Appeals opinion that she did have prior issues. So at that time, when she goes to report the injury, when she finally goes to report about five days before she has surgery, she files her Form 18. After she's had surgery is when the adjuster is able to do the recorded statement. She, in fact, still says she doesn't think it's related. The doctor hasn't given her any opinion that it's related. Ms. Sprouse is the one who has opined it's related when she gets her surgical recommendation. So my response to your question is, at what point are we looking at, we need to look at her reasonableness. At what point is reasonable because she didn't know when she files her claim. It's not until we have the deposition of Dr. McGirt that we're even addressing causation. But, but then I have to ask you, what are we to make of the General Assembly's um, rule in uh, General Statutes 97-24A, which says that the a claim for the injury must be made within two years after the accident? So she was within the two-year period, correct? She's within a two-year limitation. That's our statute of limitations provision right. as opposed to our notice. And I think the general statute, the 9722, goes to, I mean, all of the Workers' Compensation Act is a compromise. It's a compromise between the employers and the plaintiffs to get them through the industrial commission so they don't have to go through jury trials, that sort of thing, and to give everyone more of a, a fairness thing. So for, to me, 97.22 reads as, okay, we need, to be, we need to be fair about this. So the injured employee has a responsibility to immediately, that's what it says, immediately on the occurrence of an accident, and the statute says accident, or as soon thereafter as practical, give cause 
to be given to the employer written notice of the accident. Okay, that's our part one. And the employee shall not be entitled to physician's fees nor to any compensation which may have accrued under the terms of this article prior to the giving of such notice unless it can be shown that the employer, his agent, or representative had knowledge of the accident or that the party had been prevented through fraud or deceit. Then it goes on to say, but no compensation shall be payable unless written notice is given within 30 days after the occurrence of the accident or death, unless reasonable excuse is made to the satisfaction of the Industrial Commission. To me, that's a fairness thing. That's the employee has a duty and obligation to report their accident. If they fail to report their accident, there are ways around this. They can give a reasonable excuse. They give a reasonable excuse, and the employer. Right, but there's no dispute here she reported yeah. the accident. Correct. And, and so this question of reasonableness, uh, is it, are you arguing that the Industrial Commission, it, even though we said in Gregory that there must be findings of fact about whether or not the plaintiff had a reasonable excuse, um, are you suggesting that that's not a factual determination, that that's a legal determination? I'm saying that the Court of Appeals made that determination. That was, their Court of Appeals determined that that was a legal determination. As, is it but factual? Doesn't that fly in the face of Gregory, which said there should be findings of fact about that, you know, the reasonableness depends on the circumstances of each case and there need to be factual findings about whether or not it was reasonable? And I think that certain conclusions of law and findings of fact, certain findings of fact lend themselves more towards being conclusions of law as, as in you have to have this specific finding, but it also leads into the conclusion of law itself. Thank you. During your exchange with Justice Searles, you acknowledged a couple of times that actual notice was actually given of this accident. What's your position on what the claimant, the appellant here is saying that there was ample opportunity that was given therefore with the actual notice being given for the employer to follow up in terms of dictating what the follow-up would be in terms of any medical uh, follow-up or any other monitoring of the situation involving the claimant. I think this case um, is an interesting one in that the other cases where it, the courts have looked at the employer was able to have some knowledge, they had actual knowledge of the accident, and then they also were aware the, the claimant was treating, such as Lakey versus US Airways, wherein the plaintiff was injured on the, on the flight and then went and treated with their own doctor. In the instant case, what we have is a tractor trailer driver. We don't have somebody who comes into the office. We don't have somebody that the employer is seeing on a daily basis, as in some of the cases, the, there are notices of witnesses who noted people moving differently. Um, in the instant case, what we have is someone who notified the employer that there was an accident, specifically notifies them there was no injury to her, separate from her husband, and then she and her husband removed themselves from work, so his, his injury can be addressed. So the employer doesn't have any means to follow up with her. The only means to follow up would be if they had been able to send her to a doctor, but she chose on her own to go to her own doctor, her own family practitioner. So they had no means of, of knowing that she was seeking that treatment on her own, and they had no means of knowing that she was, in fact, sustained any injury. Well, you, you're saying that they had no means by which to know that she herself was following up with the actual notice component being satisfied. Wasn't that enough 
I'm arguing in terms of giving you a devil's advocate uh, approach. Uh, wasn't that enough for the employer nonetheless with its actual notice to say, irrespective of what the claimant is doing herself, we ourselves as the employer are going to move forward in terms of our own investigation and follow-up? Doesn't actual notice comply with that component sufficiently under the law? I think the actual notice still requires, based on the, the subsequent cases, requires a reasonableness finding of the of the claimant's actions. As for what the employer could have done, there's many things they could have done. There's there's hindsight's 2020. I mean, a lot of employers ha do have a requirement that in every accident, an employer must immediately go to an urgent care. That's not the case here because we have somebody. She was actually in Tennessee when this occurred, so the employer. Their, their actions are limited to, she says she's not injured. Um, could they have forced her? Absolutely they could have forced her, but why would they when she says she wasn't injured? Cou they're relying on Council, it seems to me we're talking about this almost like it was a fender bender. This is a case where a tractor trailer tire blew out and the tractor trailer slammed into an embankment. Um, don't you think that the employer should have at least contemplated the possibility that there could have been some serious injuries that weren't immediately manifest? Well, and again, we're relying on Ms. Sprouse to tell us what's going on. Now, I know it, it from plaintiff's counsel's uh, description of the accident, it sounds very, very severe. The pictures look very severe. What actually happened was the trailer itself overturned. The cab did not. The cab, which she was in and driving, went into the embankment. She held onto the steering wheel and went into the embankment. So there's the damages to the trailer, not the cab itself that she was in. So while we're acknowledging it's a, a, a clearly a serious accident, particularly for poor Mr. Sprouse, who went on to have medical treatment, she herself, who also managed his claim, that's in her own testimony, and Mr. Sprouse also testified at hearing that she did so, she never reported that she was injured as a result of this accident until 2018. Where would the prejudice be? The prejudice is, um, again, I think we go back to Booker, where we look at the, um, the ability to direct the medical treatment. And in that ability, It's, it's been removed completely from defendants for the ability to, to do so. So the Booker analysis is, again, enable the employer to provide immediate medical diagnosis and treatment with a view to minimizing the seriousness of the injury. And we've addressed that she has two herniated discs. And again, what could have been done? We're in hindsight at this point. What could have been done? We will never know because defendants were not given the opportunity to manage her medical treatment because she never reported the injury. But how are we also to apply our precedents which say that um, an employer only can um, have the right to direct medical care um, when they accept the claim? And they don't have that right and they don't do that when they've denied the claim. And in this case where the employer is denying that her injuries were the result of the accident, they wouldn't have had the right to direct her care anyway. Okay, so we have to go back to the beginning again because um, for the Industrial Commission, there's no claim until somebody files a Form 18. There's no, no claim that exists. And until we file a Form 18, there cannot be an acceptance or denial. There was no 18 until 2018. 
So there could be no acceptance or denial at that point. Had she filed notice of her claim when she filed notice of her husband's claim, this could have been a different story. Had she filed a claim immediately with her husband's claim and notified defendants that she had sought treatment at an urgent care for complaints of neck pain, she did complain of neck pain at that time, as well as lumbar spine pain, then you would have a, a, a motor vehicle accident um, that was compensable, at least as far as her husband was concerned, and you have immediate medical care. Those are factors that defendants look at in determining compensability right there. So again, we're doing this in hindsight, trying to figure out what, what we could have done, and there's a lot of stuff that could have been done. The Industrial Commission said that the actual notice of the accident, the day it happened, provided ample opportunity to the employer to investigate the plaintiff's condition following the accident. Why you have said repeatedly that there was not an opportunity or that the employer was not given the opportunity to investigate if there was actual notice of the accident and if the plaintiff was seeking on her own volition treatment, wasn't the employer in a position to follow up on the accident and check with the employee, the claimant, to find out whether or not she was engaged in any uh, treatment and therefore that would comply with the follow-up aspect? And I don't believe there was testimony about this, so I'm not sure. Again, I feel like we're, we're talking in hindsight, but again, I think we go back to that they weren't aware she was injured. She specifically told them she was not injured. I believe it was her testimony when she talked with the employer when she initially reported the accident that she was not injured. Um, so at that point in time, when the employer, again, has been informed that she's not injured by the, the written reports, if plaintiff is saying, I'm not injured, and then goes on her own, I, could they have? Sure, they could have, but why would they? Well, because well it, that's interesting. You know, for this court's involvement then, does that close the door uh, on a claimant when the claimant says he or she is not injured? Does that then uh, mean that the employer has no further uh, need or obligation to investigate? I, I think... In some ways, I think in some ways 9722 gives us our protection for that type of employee because then we look at their reasonableness. Were their actions reasonable within the circumstances? And at that point in time, what, what, is, what is the plaintiff's obligation under the act? What is the employer's obligation under the act? The employer doesn't have an obligation until under the Workers' Compensation Act until plaintiff files a claim. There's, there's, there's no actual obligation to accept, deny, there is, of course, the medical-only treatment kind of thing that can, that can go forth, but what kind of obligation are we setting out for both sides? Is what I, that's what I see you're saying. You're saying is plaintiff's or the employee's obligation to report an accident such that it would bar them from compensation altogether should they fail to do so, and does the employer have any obligation to do anything further? And I don't think the statute gives them an obligation to do anything further. I think the statute places that burden on the employee by telling them you have to give, that is on you to give written notice of the accident. And if you fail to do so, there we have these provisions that will protect you. Isn't this why all of this uh, is delegated to the administrative body, the Industrial Commission, the court system looks to 
the specialized agency, namely here, the Industrial Commission, to make those kinds of determinations, and we have to give it deference. I think that, um, I think even if you gave it deference, you still have to look at whether the findings of fact are supported by competent evidence, ultimately. So I think even if we didn't utilize the de novo standard, if we're utilizing the standard that plaintiff's counsel cited um, in, his, in his brief and in his argument, you still have to determine whether those those findings of fact are supported by that competent evidence. And uh, I think it's defendant's argument they were not. Uh, and um, may I, Justice Morgan? Certainly. Oh, thank you. Uh, to that point, uh, I'd like for you to have the opportunity to comment on the Gregory case, because I believe your friends on the other side have said that, they, that uh, the Industrial Commission checked off all the boxes. I believe that's an exact quote. Um, and I realize this relates to prejudice. So I guess my first question is, you've devoted much of your time to talk about reasonableness, but are you saying there's no need to get to prejudice if there's no reasonableness, or do you have a position on the prejudice and how uh, the requirements of the Gregory opinion? I, th I think the Gregory set out very clearly that regardless of whether you have actual notice, that you have to find, you have to find whether or not there was a reasonable excuse and even if you find there's a reasonable excuse you then have to find prejudice so that is my reading of Gregory um, uh, thank you and to follow up with that do you agree or how do you respond to um, the opposition that um, with respect at least to prejudice that the Industrial Commission uh, given their um, uh, their situation had checked off all the boxes that they have met the requirement with the findings of fact and the conclusions that they made in their order I think, I think that the Industrial Commission um, didn't really make a finding regarding prejudice other than defendants failed to show it, and they didn't elucidate why that was. And so, um, no, please. Oh. Whose burden is it to show prejudice if, if the plaintiff has a reasonable um, basis for the delay? It's defendant's burden. I think the case law is very clear. So, did the Court of Appeals get that wrong? I think they did. I do. I, I, in reading their opinion, there's a there's a few things that I was I was told by somebody. I shouldn't say this, but um, that Judge Tyson is more interested in making sure we get things out quickly. And I think there's a few. That was one that struck struck me as being an improper shifting, because I think the case law is clear. Did, did, is it your contention that uh, the employer showed prejudice? Yes. And, and what's the basis for that other than just the sort of the, the per se prejudice that the Court of Appeals seemed to establish? I think, I think the um, defendant's argument on that is, is very much focused on the time delay. It's very much focused on the time delay. It's very much focused on the, um, the fact that but for plaintiff's failure to provide us with notice what we could have done, what could have been done for her, but and we couldn't do anything until 2018 when she gave us notice of the injury at which point she already had the surgical recommendation and subsequently underwent surgery within seven days so that's our it's a but for argument is but for her actions we could have done some things but our prejudice has shown in that we could do nothing at that point could her cervical disc progression have been stopped so that she would not have had to undergo surgery we will never know and again, for causation in denied claims, that was one thing I wanted to address. The burden of proof for causation is on plaintiff. It's not on defendants. So in that instance, it's, it's on them to prove causation. And I think 
Dr. McGirt's opinion very much follows that ad hoc ergo propter hoc um, fallacy, which is something happened, then she has this, therefore this must be the cause, and that's, that's not sufficient, and I think we've argued that sufficiently in our brief, but happy to address anybody has. Thank you, counsel. All right. Um, if there are any further questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you, counsel. Okay, thank you. Rebuttal. May it please the court, I'm Brad Collins on behalf of the appellant. I would like to address um, directly what Justice Berenger uh, has asked on multiple occasions, I believe, today, which is the ruling or the findings on prejudice. The conclusion of law that is provided in the ONA of the full commission specifically provides defendants had notice and didn't investigate it. As Justice Allen has provided, this was a serious accident. This wasn't a bump up. The defendants have admitted even here it injured another uh, passenger, another employer, employee. So they made a choice under those circumstances with a major accident not to investigate it. We have uh, situations all the time where employers send employees to urgent care or to facilities to be evaluated to determine the extent, even when the employees say they are okay. That's very important in this situation. They had that opportunity. Additionally, the defendants presented no evidence on the issue of prejudice. The full commission is the fact finder. They made specific findings of fact regarding the prejudice. Uh, the, the aspect, um, for the employee to bear that burden, which they have now admitted is not the burden of the employee, they can't then not put it on any evidence to show prejudice and then say, but we're prejudiced. Th this is a situation as to why the Gregory decision is so articulated and it is so specific as to what the, the uh, Industrial Commission is supposed to find. And they found it. They went right through that playbook. Um, addressing Justice Dietz, the, the finding of facts from the uh, full commission, they have to be the fact finder. As, as you had spoken of before, if we are here in the appellate range trying to determine the findings of fact, it, 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 it creates chaos for the entire system. We can't do that. The, the standard of review is very, very important to the entire industrial uh, commission and the entire workers' compensation system. The employees, the employers, and the insurance carriers rely upon the understanding of what the law is and what the rules are. And if we ignore the rules for this case, we're opening up uncertainty that creates irreparable harm to the entire system. It is very, very important for the Court of Appeals not to become the fact finders on specific issues. And I think that goes directly to the argument that's been made by the defendants over and over today regarding reasonableness. Reasonableness is the objective standard that we learn in law school to be determined by the finder of fact. And in this situation, the finder of fact was the full commission. You can't use the term reasonable and then just say, we don't think it's reasonable. Well, it's not the defendant's uh, uh, role to determine what's reasonable. It's the court's role to determine what's reasonable. And the finders of fact that are established by the legislature in 1929 when the when this act was started, said who was the finder of fact would be. And that finder of fact is the full commission. They provided competent evidence to support their findings of fact. Those findings of fact support that the plaintiff complied with the, with the provisions of Gregory, which is the law of the state of North Carolina. 
as I said, was provided by our Chief Justice and the uh, Court of Appeals ignored that law, they should be reversed and the opinion from this court should be supporting the appellate. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Mr. Clark.